On this episode of Avtalk, whale songs, a Vulcan howl, Chewbacca's greeting, whatever you want to call it, Graham Webb from Pratt & Whitney joins us to explain the geared turbofan's distinctive noise. Plus, what's blue goo? Hello and welcome to episode 99 of Avtalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz and hello Ian. How was your Thanksgiving at home? It was it was very different as I think most people's Thanksgivings were. We usually host between 25 and 30 people. That's uh, about for, 25 and 30 people too many this year. Yeah, so we we cut that down by a lot and uh, had a very quiet and nice Thanksgiving. Fewer leftovers, though I, I will say I did benefit from you can't buy less than a whole pie, so there was more pie for me. That's never a problem. I am certainly not comp- I'm I'm finding ways to look on the bright side as we look towards the the light at the end of the tunnel and we can start considering getting back to what things were like before a little bit. But yeah, how, how was your Thanksgiving? It was also quiet. Uh, usually spend it with some of my family in Brooklyn. Have a, It varies year to year. Sometimes it's small, sometimes it's large. But this year, I just went to uh, my parents' place. It was just me and my parents for dinner. So it was pretty, pretty quiet. Uh, we almost didn't even have turkey. Apparently, it's not really possible to find a a turkey under 15 pounds and it would be a huge waste to cook that much food for just three people. But at the last minute, they found, a, I think, a nine pound turkey and cooked that up. So, got that going for us, which is pretty nice. There you go. Small, small turkey. Who knew? <laughs> We're learning all sorts of new things this year. Speaking of learning new things, later in the episode, we are going to talk to a very special guest, Graham Webb, who is the uh, VP and general manager of the Regional Jet Geared Turbofan Engine Program at Pratt & Whitney. We will finally put an end to this uh, five-episode story arc of Jason and I talking about whale sounds and, and other things coming from the Pratt and Whitney engines. So stay tuned for that a little bit later in the show. Like I said at the top of the show, this is episode 99, which makes next episode, episode 100. And while we will do something special to celebrate episode 100, we just couldn't come up with something that we felt was special enough. And in kind of the the vein of, of the what we like to do with the podcast. So Jason and I have decided to, like a number of things this year, postpone celebrations. So we're still going to do something to celebrate episode 100. We just won't be celebrating 100 episodes on episode 100 in in a, you know, spectacular fashion. Although I suppose, you know, having John Walton on the show will be spectacular fashion. So that is how we are going to to celebrate hopefully with John coming on and giving us some very good news. In the next episode, he's going to talk to us about everything he's learned over the past 9 months researching how an eventual and now uh, approved in some places uh, COVID vaccine will be transported, you know, especially focusing on, you know, the 
the aviation angle. But we're going to learn all about that and learn everything he's learned uh, over the past few months. So that and, is uh, a little spoiler alert on that is it is not easy. It is certainly not easy, but certainly looking looking like it's it's possible. But we're going to learn exactly what what goes into that and and go from there. So that's the housekeeping portion of the episode. Except Jason, you told me something before we started recording, and and I wanted to uh, I wanted to to have this as part of the show. Y- you said you saw an airplane. I did. I did. Go on. Uh, so while I was back at my parents' place by by JFK, which someplace uh, I don't spend a whole lot of time this uh, these days for very obvious reasons. I was just kind of sitting around, I think it was Saturday or, or, or Sunday, browsing Flight Radar 24 on my phone and my downtime as you know we have been known to do. And I noticed that the European cargo A340-600 uh, that had been doing rounds in and out of JFK was on, uh, I would guess, not quite final approach, but very close into JFK. And I dropped everything that I was doing, even though I wasn't doing anything at the time, and literally hopped in the car and drove out to get a picture of it with my phone. Unfortunately, I didn't have an actual camera, but that's the first time I had done that in in years. And it it felt – it was nice. It felt good to go do that. Uh, Since that, seeing the A340-600 at any point in the future is probably going to be exceptionally rare, it's going to be even more rare to see one that's been converted to operate – hauling cargo in the passenger deck. So I was happy to get out and see that. Yeah. I mean, that's one of, I think, what, three now or two or three that have been converted to carry the the PPE in the um, in the main deck. I think that the, the registration on that was actually 9H PPE. Yep. That's the one I did yeah. see. It didn't have the uh, thank you NHS titles on it anymore, though I'm not sure if that one did or if it was another one. But I can't imagine they're going to be using the 346 to haul cargo all that much longer in the future. The demand is at some point going to drop off. So I really wanted to get out there and get a shot of that before it was too late. Yeah. I mean, it'll be really interesting to see what happens, whether they just kind of put those away and and how quickly that happens. Because it certainly can't be – it's efficient enough, I guess. At the moment, but there's going to come a point in time where it just is not worth it at all. No, it's an aircraft that is available and can move things now. That may not be something that is so in demand in the near future once uh, all the PPE shipments and I guess vaccine shipments are are over with. So this is probably not going to be something we'll see too much longer. Yeah. Well, I, hopefully, I, it's, I I hate to say this, but hopefully not. Yeah, hopefully <laughs> yeah. not is right. That, that that's sad, but <laughs> unfortunately, I guess we just talked about John Walton and his favorite aircraft in the world is the A three forty six hundred. So, sorry, John. <laughs> sorry in advance. We'll apologize to him again next episode as well. So November has ended. We're recording Wednesday, the second of December. And looking at the statistics for the month, as we usually do, commercial air traffic was still down uh, 40% in the month of November compared to a year prior. So, you know, not much of a change. August was 45% uh, down. Uh, Then, you know, September was 43%. October was 
42. So things are, you know, slowly improving, but we've really entered kind of the, the seasonal decline where, you know, the number of flights are declining month over month, but they're declining more slowly this year than, than they normally would as, you know, airlines try and claw back as much as they can. But traffic's still down, I mean, you know, in an incredible amount. The total flights overall only down 21.8% below last year, which struck me. I, I was surprised that the number has made it that far back. A lot of non-commercial flying out there. Yeah. I guess a lot of people were out there in, in their general aviation aircraft getting from A to B as safely as possible. And I'm not quite sure what could explain that. Maybe A to A, hopefully. That That's true. General aviation sometimes. A lot of the times, I guess most of that traffic is A to A, isn't it? Yeah. But we did see in, in the commercial numbers, we did see a small bump in the run-up to Thanksgiving. So, we'll see if we're talking next episode, whether or not that had an effect on things. Hopefully, it didn't. Hopefully, that was just some, some shifted traffic that, you know, where people are trying to work around a holiday. But I, I think I might be being overly optimistic in that respect. So we'll we'll see what the effect that increased number of, of flights has on things uh, in the coming week or so. We are back to our bi-weekly 737 MAX update. What and, now? And in this respect, it seems like things, you know, are moving in the right direction. So last time we, we talked with we talked with John Ostrauer, and he let us know everything there is to know about the the process of getting the MAX back into the air. The FAA had approved it. That was moving towards other regulators approving it. So we have EASA in covering the European Union. They've issued their proposed airworthiness directive. It's still under the public comment period. Brazil has okayed the MAX to return. And the FAA has now issued this week its first airworthiness certificates for the 737 MAX following their recertification of the aircraft. So things moving in generally in, in the direction of carrying passengers again. Today was the um, American Airlines put not paying passengers, but people who don't work for the airline on the aircraft for the first time. So that's a thing that happened. Yeah, and the first official, officially scheduled passenger flight of a Max right now is still December 29th, Miami to LaGuardia with American. We'll see if that holds or if possibly another airline scoops them. I've heard Goal down in Brazil is really looking to uh, do some flights as well, possibly bump up their first flight. So. December is going to be an interesting month for the Max. Finally, after twenty months of not not anything good. Yeah, so it it we'll see. You know who who gets theirs back in back in the air first. You know, I've definitely seen an uptick in aircraft activations over the past few days, even where you know we're seeing more transponders powered on. Goal especially has at least two aircraft that have flown. Aerolineas Argentinas is working on getting their aircraft back into the air. I don't know if they've been, if they haven't had their national regulators approved anything yet, but they've powered the aircraft on. So that's the first time we've seen that in a while. Um, and a lot of Boeing flight tests 
so so things are things are moving and by the end of the month it, it'll be interesting to see who who becomes the first to uh to carry passengers again so you know we'll we'll keep an eye on that to see who who's the next to approve and, and like we talked about last time there are a lot of outstanding questions about uh you know certain certain national regulators especially China and and how quickly they allow the the max to return to service yeah i don't believe we've heard a peep out of china so far even in the in the last two weeks since we last talked about this, no, no, and still not. And there's been you know some some reporting about timelines and things like that, but nothing, nothing official and nothing solid, and nothing that says yes, this is the plan. Uh, so that'll be something that we're certainly keeping an eye on, given everything we talked about uh, in the last episode as well. A follow up on what we talked about, I, I think the the last episode as well, the Volga Nyeper AN124 that suffered the uncontained engine failure. That investigation remains ongoing. In the interim, Volga has grounded their entire AN124 fleet. Yeah, that's a bit interesting, isn't it? Because originally we had been led to believe, or there was information or pictures that it, the uncontained engine failure was at least in part caused by uh, a bird striker or an ingestion of some sort of flying animal. It, it's odd to me that they would ground the entire fleet. There must be some other information that they have that there was some sort of problem that this could potentially happen to other aircrafts, whether they believe a, a bird strike could create the same failure to other engines or if there's something else going on. But an airline operating such a highly specialized aircraft in very high demand like that right now, they must have a very good reason to ground those airplanes. Yeah. It, the the information that, that they put out was that the investigation is in preliminary stages and that there was no indication as to the cause of the failure yet, which is where I think the precautions are coming from. That they, because they couldn't point to anything, they wanted to be, you know, better to be safe than sorry, uh, kind yeah. of thing. So yeah, it'll be really interesting to see the, you know, kind of the root cause of the failure, and certainly the investigational detail. What we don't really know, kind of internally, what the damage was. I mean, you've seen, you know, obviously exterior photographs, but um, we we don't know all of the damage that occurred. Obviously, given the loss of you know the the brakes, the electronics, and those things, you know something something bad happened inside the aircraft as well. So that'll be interesting to to see when the report finally comes out. But yeah, they're they're grounded now. They have eight active, or I, I suppose seven plus one, if you if <laughs> you count the if you count the incident aircraft. But they they did tow it off. <laughs> I, I don't know, Jason. If if you saw the video, we'll we'll find it and, and drop it in the show notes. The video of the aircraft being removed from the airfield with a few tanks. Yes, uh, I was corrected on Twitter that those are not tanks; those are, I believe, armored personnel uh, carriers. Yes, yes, yes. Either way, it is a very large armored metal heavy vehicle that you wouldn't typically see at an airport uh, hauling a very broken plane out of a snowbank. Yes, I will be sure to uh, properly attribute the vehicle type, I, and and I completely understand people getting uh, very particular about things like that because we do it all the time with airplanes. So yes, armored personnel carriers, not tanks. Good to know. Which reminds me of the the, the time that uh, a certain news organization thought uh, 
that we tracked tanks on Flight Radar 24. But, ah, uh, the old turkey incident. Yeah. <laughs> Every time I think about that, that we've talked about this before, I think maybe uh, in July when, when, the, when the anniversary of everything comes around. But when Turkey, when there was the, the failed coup in Turkey and there were reports of, of army vehicles moving about Istanbul, a, a certain uh, British news organization mistakenly took the fire fighting aircraft and tugs and things like that equipped with ADSB transponders for tanks. So we had to issue a correction on that one. So that was uh Yeah, I, I don't fun. know what kind of tech tanks do have, but an ADSB out receiver transmitter is probably not a piece of that uh, technology. Probably not. But yeah, I mean, that's always a fun one. What else happened in the past couple of weeks? And we had to uh, dig. It was yeah. a quiet couple of weeks. It, it was, and and you know the the holidays will I'll do that to you, I guess. But let's go to to Spain and the British Airways seven four seven that caught fire during the dismantling process. That was now to uh, be clear, it was a British Airways seven four seven, but they no longer owned it at the time. Yes, of fire. A, a former British Airways seven four seven that was being dismantled. There, it experienced a fire. The fire was put out. No one was hurt, but kind of a weird thing to have. I mean, I, do we know how it started? I, I haven't seen anything. Uh, rumors or, or likely cause, I believe, are, are from the material, the the tools they were using to dismantle the aircraft from inside. If they're, I guess, not welding, but if they're taking apart the metal of uh, the aluminum of the aircraft, there there are going to be sparks, and well, sparks lead to fire. That'll, that'll do it. That'll do it. Yep. And not a huge loss here. There isn't exactly a huge market for uh, some of the, I guess, the flight deck components, I've been told, that may or may not have been lost. The real money with these aircraft are the the, the engines, which thankfully were a long way away from the fire. They, yeah. They don't usually put the engines on the flight deck. No, no. That that would be strange. <laughs> I'm, sure there, I'm sure there's some aircraft out there that, that has operated like that, but but the seven four seven is not one of them. Nope. What do you say that we take a quick break and then come back and we'll chat with Graham Webb from Pratt and Whitney, who's going to fill us in on the uh, the sounds that the engine makes that Jason and I have have described as as whale sounds. Graham may have a a different description for that particular sound. So stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment. Let's pause here for a moment. And I want to play the sound of the the particular engine noises that we're going to discuss with Graham. And we'll we'll play the sound and then we will uh, we'll chat with we'll Graham finally about finally find uh, out. What exactly, exactly what this is all about. So uh, maybe we so, made it up the whole time. <laughs> this is a very elaborate rickroll. No, I promise it's not. Here is the the uh, Pratt and Whitney geared turbofan engine making the whale sounds. Or Graham may have a, a different description, but but here's the sound.
Welcome back. We are now joined by someone who is wise in the ways of something that Jason and I have been uh, wondering about for the past couple episodes, and here to talk to us about the the beautiful song that the Pratt & Whitney Geared Turbo Fan Engine makes is the VP and General Manager of the Regional Jet Geared Turbo Fan Engine Program, Graham Webb. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Graham, thanks so much for joining. So a little backstory. I live in Brooklyn and I'm under a couple of the different approaches to LaGuardia. And when the A220 flown by really just Delta at LaGuardia at this point flies overhead, it is absolutely unmistakable. And I'm not saying that the aircraft is loud. It's not really louder than any of the other aircraft flying into LaGuardia. But there is a specific noise that the A220 and the the Pratt GTF engines make that sounds incredibly like kind of like a whale song. It's not disturbing in any way. It's actually kind of pleasant in in how how noticeable and how identifiable it is as I don't hear anything else like that out there. So we're really happy to have you on with us today to explain what that noise is and why it happens. Okay. So what you're hearing is a uh, low-power transient combustor tone, which occurs at, again, low power. See, Jason, I told you. I told you that. <laughs> you knew it, of course. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a, uh, you know, it's a transient tone. It occurs uh, you know, when, in, in typical when they're in autopilot on approach and they're at very low power flight idle modes and they're goosing the, the idle to maintain their flight path. And that causes an unsteady event to occur in terms of the flame front, which results in pressure perturbations that then react with uh, the combustor structure and and, uh, provide this kind of cute little, uh, you know, people call it different things. Vulcan howl is the coolest one. (laughs) I think uh, whale tone is, you know, more typical. But, um, yeah, I mean, it makes a little uh, tone. And, you know, I would say that this is not something new. I mean, gas turbine engines and, and you know, with combustors have had combustor tones for as long as the history of gas turbine engines. And, and it definitely, um, we've done a lot of hard work throughout the history to ensure that thermoacoustic instabilities during combustor, uh, combustion don't damage the engine, you know, from vibrations or result in any instabilities in operation, loss of flame. We call that um, blowout, you know, bad things like that when you're flying. So, you, you know, the, the tone is, is effectively just something that occurs at a, as again, very low power mode when when the throttles are being jockeyed. You know, we, we hear them sometimes on the ground when the pilots are um, taxiing around in certain conditions and certain um, bleed states on the aircraft. So that's that's what it's all about. And, you know, the, the thing that's interesting is, is, as you've indicated, it's not unpleasant. It's, it's actually, you just hear it because of its prominence, um, because the, the gear turbofan engines inherently are very, very quiet, and they're quieter than all of the other jets you typically hear flying overhead by, you know, about 10 uh, dBs. And, you know, what, what occurs is that when this transient tone happens, you get, you know, an 8 to 10 dB spike on top of that, and so it's, it's, it's prominent. We call it prominence of the tone, and that's why, you, you know, you notice it. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. So like I said, it's not like it's not louder than any other aircraft out there. It's just that the A220 with the Pratt engine is just so darn quiet to begin with that it's really prominent over other noise, especially later at night when it's actually quiet around here, which is somewhat rare. But what I have <laughs> noticed is that the A320neo, which comes in from Frontier, which also has GTF engines, I don't really recall ever hearing that particular noise with the 320neo. Yep, a little bit bigger engine helps. You, you get a little more uh, room to, you know, have these uh, transient effects occur without, you know, the effect that we're observing. And, and, and it is, you know, engine specific. You know, every engine is a little different. Interesting. So, if and when eventually the Embraer E2 starts coming into uh, LaGuardia here, and yeah, when I do see that overhead, it will make the same type of noise as the A220. It, it does. Uh, at least I've heard it on the ground. I haven't uh, heard about it in, on approach, but I, I would not be shocked if they have something similar. Would you have it over? And, I, and I, as I said, we do know that it does have uh, you know similar transit low-power tones when it uh, tools are on the ground taxi. So I, I want to take a step back and talk about the geared turbofan engine because we we haven't really. We haven't really jumped into, you know, engines all that much on on the podcast. Mostly because Jason and I start from almost nothing as far as our engine knowledge is concerned. But can you kind of give us the the overview of the difference between we're we're talking about a geared turbofan, just a regular turbofan engine? So obviously the the geared part's important because it's part of the name. But but what's kind of the the general idea here? Yeah, um, what it is is that we kind of came up with this concept back you know in the mid two thousands, and and we've been working on this gear for forty years. Um, and, it, and it's well known that if you are able to optimize the speed of the fan, which likes to turn slow. And increase the speed of the turbo machinery, which likes to be fast for high efficiency. You can have the greatest engine efficiency that you want. And, and the, the challenge has been is that most of these engines are what we call direct drive, so the fan is directly coupled to the the low pressure turbine turbo machinery, and and that forces them to turn at the same speed. So you're always having to make compromises. So by introducing a reduction gear in between those two, you're enabling the turbine to go as fast as it wants for optimal efficiency, and you're enabling the fan to go at its lower and slower speed for optimal efficiency. And, and when you do that, you can actually go to larger fan diameters, which also, by virtue of reducing fan pressure ratio, which I think most people know is high bypass ratio, enables us to have very, very strong gains in fuel efficiency over prior technology. And, and that's the advantage of the gear turbo fan engine. We also get noise reduction because the fan's spinning slower. And we also have emissions that are world-class by virtue of this combustor that we're talking about. Are we going to see engines continue to get to get larger by way of, you know, figuring out how to optimize that that gearing because you said a fan, you know, increases in size as kind of an uh, effect uh, of this engineering. Or are we really limited to, you know, what the airframers are going to do and then and you kind of work within those size constraints? Well, I mean, certainly we see a very long runway for the gear turbofan architecture and you know, we continue to see applications for it. Uh, as we go into the future, and, and and to your point, you know the efficiency improvement is obtained by making the fans larger, and the the cores commensurately smaller, and and there will be physical limits to 
you know, how far you can push that. But then you start getting into different architectures where, for sake of discussion, you have a distributed fan arrangement with a central turbine and all kinds of other fun things can happen. Um, and, and as you've stated, we'll work those collaboratively and we continue to do that with uh, the airframers. So Graham, I, I asked uh, on Twitter some questions about, about general interest of the, the this particular engine. And one of them I, I wasn't quite expecting, but the question is, why are the inside of most Pratt & Whitney engines green? Is that a material choice or an arbitrary decision? Did not think I'd be asking that, but uh, is, there, is there any rhyme or reason to that? Yeah, that that is our rub strip material, which is um, surprisingly a very carefully um, engineered material for its um, ability to. What what we do is we we use that abrasive material to to provide us the tightest gap or, or clearance between the fan and, and that that shroud, so it's an abrasive. And fan blades have different lengths. Some are you know a little longer, and some are a little shorter. And, and basically, we build it up so that we can allow a longer blade to cut into that um, that blue goo, as we call it, in order to enable us to have the tightest fan clearance as possible. Now, that's why they're green. And, and there's, as I said, there's a lot of engineering that goes into it because there is a reaction with that blue goo or that shroud and the fan blades. And you want to make sure that you're not exciting either in the process. And that's why not only the... Um, you know, there's a wide variety of engineering properties that uh, we optimize in order to um, accomplish that that uh, compound that you see that is kind of like, we call it blue goo, but I think you guys call it green. You know, it's just a matter of um, how it looks that day. <laughs> Graham Webb, I want to thank you so much for joining us to explain what we're hearing when the A220 goes over and when the gear turbo fan passes over. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back. We now know what that sound is. I am happy to know that we have not just been imagining it this whole time. <laughs> and there's an actual technical reason for it. And and we got the the technical technical reason for it, which I really appreciated. You know, I'm going to have to do some googling for for sure to make sure I understand everything that that he told us, but I it all makes sense. It's just so fascinating to me that it, it stands out so much on that particular engine. Because you can hear it on other aircraft kind of when they pass over on, on approach where, where you get that kind of – it sounds like a downshifting. It's not the same though. But it's not the same. No, no. It's definitely not the same. So it's you know just fascinating to me. And we learned about the blue goo. Yeah. Who knew? Maybe now we can get someone on from Airbus to explain the barking dog phenomenon of the A320 series. <laughs> this is going to become some sort of like weird sounds that airplanes make. There are a lot of weird sounds. There there are. So uh, yeah, no, I, I feel like the, the barking dog one is one that we've, we've talked about before. We have, and I know what it is. That's a relatively simple one, but I want to know what Airbus has to tell about it. Maybe there's something we don't know about it. Ooh, <laughs> surprise. It's actually a dog. Who knew? Huh. Speaking of dogs. Ah, you, you good can, transition. Thank you. You can carry one on board an aircraft in the US today. And you can call it an emotional support animal. And the airline says, okay. But now, 
the Department of Transportation has said, uh, no, no, the airline can charge you uh, to bring on your emotional support animal. And this will also stop all of the random animals in the cabin. So notable examples over the the previous, what, uh, five or so years that we've seen. Uh, we've got pigs. There was a turkey once. What are, what are some of the other more uh, interesting ones? I think I saw a peacock ones? at some point. A, a peacock? peacock, yep. Yep. So that won't happen anymore. If you want to bring an animal as a, a, a service animal, it has to be trained as a service animal. It has to be, you have to have paperwork and, and things like that. And then if you want to bring a pet on board, you can pay the airline and then fly with your pet. Yep. And the new rule, I believe, defines service animal as a dog as well. Correct. Regardless of breed. So it's it's very clearly defined now as a dog, regardless of breed or type, that is individually trained to do work or perform tasks as for the benefit of qualified individual with disability, including physical, sensory, psychiatric, intellectual, or other medical disability. So, no more uh, emotional support peacock on board flights in the U.S. I mean, part of me is a little sad to see the emotional support peacock go, but also I'm not. No, so, had to yeah. happen. It, it had become an overt safety issue on flights in the U.S. where you had animals that were very clearly not trained to be in the position they were in, um, that if there was an actual emergency on board could absolutely hamper an evacuation of the aircraft or create other situations like making a mess all over the place, which is unpleasant smelling. Yeah, and and I, I think it was certainly leading to a, a number of confrontations every year between people who were traveling with an animal and the fellow passengers who were being subjected to to an animal that may or may not have been trained to be on board the aircraft in that capacity. So yeah, no more emotional support peacocks. Sorry, Jason. Good riddance. Embraer is no longer for sale. So we talked about, oh, I would say months ago now, uh, Embraer was selling itself, combining with with Boeing's commercial operations. That got to very late stages and then it didn't happen. Yeah. Boeing just kind of pulled the plug one day and Embraer was apparently quite surprised about that. Yeah. So they've come back and said, we're no longer for sale. We're going to we're gonna stick it out. We're going to go it alone. They've been releasing some interesting concepts over the past uh, month or so. So that should be interesting to see how how they manage to to remain independent to see if they can do that. They are looking for partners. So if you want to partner with Embraer to build an aircraft, by all means, uh, get in touch with them. I know Jason's talked about some designs that he's been sketching on a napkin. Absolutely, and, and we'll go from there. It's got eight engines. Some of them are turboprop. Some of them are jet. Pretty I mean, fun. Why not? At why this not, point, right? why not? So, so yeah, that, that's where that story I think is right now. I don't want to say this story ends, but but certainly where where it's at for right now. The C nine one nine, the uh, Comax mid sized aircraft, is in the final certification certification stage. They've basically said yes, you can do all of the things you do need to do uh, in order to certify the aircraft, but. 
a bit of trouble ahead, maybe? Yeah, this is reported from the South China Morning Post a couple of days ago, uh, November 27th, that uh, sanctions imposed by the Trump administration could actually impact the C919 in some pretty significant ways. And that exports from the US of key components for the aircraft, and they say including flight controls and jet engines, which turn out are pretty important to a functional airplane, might be impacted and they might not be able to export that from the US to China. So China is not in the position at this point really where it can source all of the components for an aircraft on its own and come out with a reliable functioning aircraft. I think the C919 has a fair bit of international components. So this would be quite a problem for China. I'm not really sure what the full impact here is, but it's something definitely to keep an eye on. Hmm. Yeah, it's 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 one of those things where 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 it sounds really really bad, but no one quite knows exactly how it's going to to play out at, at this point. So it'll be certainly something to keep an eye on, but it, it's not nothing is a done deal here, as far as that is what I'm understanding. Yeah, exactly. And who knows with uh, the the, uh, the late days of the current administration, who knows if these these restrictions, the embargo, or not embargo, but the the sanctions stick if that carries over to the Biden administration, or or what if this is long term, short term, or completely hypothetical? I don't think anyone really knows at this point. So, Ian, do you remember? I guess this was a couple of years ago at this point. An American A three twenty one had a little incident on takeoff and and returned to JFK and was later found to have some substantial damage. I remember that, and then we didn't really hear much. And a while ago, we heard some rumors that they might be doing something with it, and then we didn't hear anything after that. That's true. It, it's quite a suspicious and odd investigation. We haven't heard anything from the NTSB as far as I'm concerned. And some background here, an American A321 operating between JFK and LA took off from runway 31 left at JFK and allegedly had an uncommanded roll to the left. And the left wing made contact with a runway distance sign on the left side of the runway and apparently did so much damage to the wing, uh, bent it back 12 inches, I think I remember reading, enough damage that Airbus said, we'll do the repair, but we'll make absolutely no warranty on the validity of this repair or the long-term airworthiness. So American and its uh, leasing company basically said, uh, uh-uh. And uh, some uh, images surfaced on November 28th that they are picking that air part aircraft apart clean. All of the seatback screens from all of the seats have been removed. Some sidewalls have been removed. And most importantly, it looks like the APU and engines are now also in the process of being removed. So it looks like we're going to be in the interesting position of having an aircraft at JFK that needs to be scrapped. And I don't think we've seen that since the days of Tower Air. I think a Tower Air 747 was scrapped at JFK. I'm not totally sure about that, but I don't remember any instance since then of that happening. How close is it to Jamaica Bay? I mean, you could just, if you give it a hard enough shove, 
Unfortunately, it's in the American hangar, I think, so uh, not too easy. That's an interior portion. But if you get enough tugs together, anything's possible. Problem solved. Yeah, just roll it into the bay. Viking funeral. How many I mean, How many times are we going to suggest that? I, until it happens. Until it happens. We will continue suggesting this until someone does it. Yeah, no, I, 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 A, I'm fascinated to learn the results of this investigation Assuming I don't even we know if there is them. an investigation. I don't ever recall the NTSB saying they were investigating this. Uh, that's Very strange. I mean, you think at least the FAA would be looking into it. You would think. I don't know what the deal is with this, but it is quite clear from the pictures we've seen that that aircraft will never fly again. So, if you ask nicely, do you think they would let you have it? Maybe. I mean, if you take the wings off, put the fuselage on a flatbed, you could definitely get it to Brooklyn. There you go. Problem solved. My new apartment. <laughs> Just right on the street. Perfect. Let's say we end the show with a little bit of av geekness. A good friend of the program, Chris Sloan, has relaunched his archive. And Jason, you've been really poking around in there and, and, and tell us a little bit more about what we might see. What you might see is uh, Chris Sloan's personal collection of everything that is aviation geekery, I guess you could say. The man has an exhaustive collection of older images. I guess most of them are, are from the 90s and early 2000s. A lot of memorabilia, a lot of just really cool stuff to look at when you're definitely not uh, at work, definitely not distracted uh, <laughs> browsing the site. Definitely take a look at that. Very excited to have it relaunched and, and back on the uh, the web for everyone to see. Spend some time on it and uh, yeah, definitely don't get lost because you can definitely uh, take a look at it for a few hours, not realizing <laughs> it's been a few hours. Yeah. It, there, there's some... Some really great stuff in there, especially some of the really detailed models that that he's done a great job of photographing and and, and adding up there. I, I really yes. like seeing the, the the kind of the interior modeling. Uh, yeah, is, and that would be uh, thearchive.net. There you go, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well for for an easy follow down the rabbit hole. This has been episode ninety nine of AvTalk, and I. Emmy Impechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. 